0: Hey, guys. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. Welcome back to Killer Babes, the podcast you know and love. I'm glad to see you coming back for more. <laughs> and if you're new, welcome. Um, welcome. Not welcome, welcome back. Just, just welcome. Just welcome. How you doing? We're glad you're here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm
1: Katie. And I'm Kirby. And um, we're your hosts every week. For this podcast. And this week we are bringing you a good
0: story. We are. So we um, specialize in New England, as everybody knows. And uh, this week we have a very special story out of New England. Um, It's truly a landmark in this area. It was a pioneer in both the architecture and health services world. So we've got a little bit of a history lesson mixed with a medical lesson mixed with um spooks. Classic. Classic combo. Uh, if you haven't guessed thus far, because you probably haven't because that was a terrible description, <laughs> we are talking about Danvers State Hospital. Danvers State Hospital, also known as the State Lunatic Hospital at Danvers or the Danvers Lunatic Asylum, Or, the Danvers State Insane Asylum was a psychiatric hospital located in Danvers, Massachusetts, obviously. And it was in operation from 1878 to 1992. In 1873, there were only a handful of mental hospitals or asylums in operation in Massachusetts. These included the Worcester Insane Asylum, the State Lunatic Hospital in Taunton, the State Hospital at Northampton, And the Tewksbury Hospital. In 1870, these asylums were housing around 1,300 patients in buildings designed for only about a thousand, so they were starting to get a bit crowded. And then around that same time, another facility that was located in South Boston closed up, and there became a prominent need for the erection of another state mental hospital. This led to the design and construction of the Danvers State Hospital in 1874. It was to serve primarily the Essex County patients and to accommodate an overflow from South Boston of at least 200. The building was constructed under the supervision of the prominent Boston architect, Nathaniel Jeremiah Bradley, in an extremely rural, out-of-the-way location.
1: By the time of his commission at Danvers, at the apex of his career, Bradley was the architect for a phenomenal 500-plus buildings of all varieties in the Boston area. In addition to his activities as an architect, Bradley served on the Boston City Water Board from 1865 to 1877 and from 1868 to 1870 as its president. Bradley's plan for Danvers State Hospital was based on his unbuilt 1867 scheme for an insane asylum at Winthrop. A logical choice of the Danvers commissioners in December 1873, he prepared for this project by researching hospitals at Worcester Mass, Poughkeepsie, New York, Concord, New Hampshire, Philadelphia, Trenton, and one under construction at Morristown, New Jersey. And on this basis, he asked for $900,000, almost half of what the commissioners had allotted in April. The Danvers site, originally 197.25 acres, was purchased for $39,542.50, and it was chosen for beauty, privacy, view, and farming potential just 18 miles north of Boston and two miles west of Danvers and seven miles from the coastal port at Salem. The accessibility to visitors and the supply of heating and fuel were also a deciding factor. The Swans Crossing station on the Lawrence branch of the Eastern Railroad sat on the northern border of the track. Under the supervision of Lynn engineer Charles Hammond, an overall site plan was drawn up, locating the main building on the Crown of Hawthorne, and providing support for a network of roads and room for a farming operation as well. There was bitter controversy over the building of Danvers State Hospital, centered around its configuration, ornamentation, and cost. Construction began May 1st, 1874, and eventually cost went up to a whopping $1.5 million dollars. Many agreed that Danvers was probably among the foremost in its facilities for convenience in practical operation, its provisions for securing that purity of atmosphere which is necessary to be the perfection of hygienic conditions, and in its general adaptation to the purpose for which it was intended. In 1877, an inquiry was held into the cost overruns during which the issue of the hospital style, dubbed Domestic Gothic by Bradley surfaced. The commissioners defended their plans and, when exhibited at the International Exhibition in Philadelphia, received the only award made to this country for plans for an insane hospital. Of course, some disagreed. pillany Earl, then superintendent at the State Lunatic Asylum in Northampton, quote, decreed the trend to excessive ornamentation in hospital architecture, preferring comfortable interiors to gorgeous exteriors, suggesting that domes, towers, and turrets are very appropriately situated at universities like Harvard and Yale and are scarcely appropriate when they stand as monuments over the misfortune and miseries of men. Provision of pure water, an important component in the 19th century, mental health therapy was also the subject of argument during the construction and early years of this hospital. The nearby Ipswich River was explored as an early source. Ultimately, the town of Danvers, which had, in 1874, established its own water supply for Middleton Pond at Wills Hill, indicated its willingness to service the hospital's needs as well. And in 1876, an agreement was struck where the town would build its own intermediate reservoir on the grounds to supply a gravity-fed system via a series of 10, 5,000-gallon tanks in the attic.
0: Originally, the building consisted of two main center buildings housing the administration with four radiating wings on each side of the admin block. The kitchen, laundry, chapel, and dormitories for the attendants were in a connecting building in the rear. Middleton Pond supplied the hospital its water, as we said, and on each side of the main building were the wings for male and female patients respectively. The outermost wards were reserved for the most hostile patients. A, circumfer- a, a circumferential and interior road network serviced the entire complex. Most of the buildings were connected by a labyrinth of underground tunnels. Construction cost about $1.5 million at the time. The hospital opened on May 1st, 1878, and the hospital's first patients arrived on May 13th. Dr. Calvin S. May was appointed superintendent through 1880. When built, Danvers represented the latest contemporary advances in technology and engineering, as well as architecture. Later additions reflect changes in mental health care philosophy and contribute to an understanding of the overall functioning of the hospital. Concern for the disadvantaged, including the poor, the sick, and the mentally disturbed, was recognized as a responsibility of the public sector in Massachusetts since its early 17th century settlement period. Until the mid-19th century, the charge for their care rested primarily with the towns in which they resided through locally established poor farms. But the towns could not keep up with their duty, due in part to the pressures of the immigration and rapidly increasing numbers of unsettled poor. So the state stepped in, first establishing the Board of Commissioners of Alien Passengers in 1851, And in 1863, the Board of State Charities. Another important component to the state's involvement was the move away from, quote, demonology and toward moral treatment of the insane, a cause which was loudly and publicly championed by such social reformers as Boston's own Dorothy Lynde Dix. Her energetic career had significant local as well as national and international impact. At mid-century, the humanistic approach toward care of the insane was generally accepted, yet controversy still surrounded the form or building arrangement such institutions should assume. Some, heavily represented on the State Board of Charities, favored the dispersion of the dependent as opposed to their congregation. The other faction in the controversy, which found many supporters in the Association of Medical Superintendents, favored a large highly centralized complex. Chief proponent of the centralized plan was Thomas S. Kirkbride, MD, LLD, a a founder of the American Psychiatric Association
1: and a physician to the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane. Dr. Thomas Story Kirkbride, who served the Pennsylvania Hospital as a superintendent from 1841 to 1883, created a humane and compassionate environment for his patients, and he believed that beautiful settings restored patients to a more natural balance of the senses. Dr. Kirkbride's progressive therapies and innovative writings on hospital design, along with his management, became known as the Kirkbride Plan, which later influenced, in one form or another, almost every American state hospital by the turn of the century, including Danvers. Essentially, the Kirkbride Plan was an architectural design approach to structural features. The Kirkbride Plan provided that mental hospitals should one be built in the country, though accessible at all seasons. Two, be set on grounds of at least 100 acres. Three, house a maximum of 250 patients. Four, be built of stone or brick with slate or metal roof and otherwise made as fireproof as possible. Five, be composed of eight wards separated according to sex and built according to other specifications as to size, location, and material of accommodations. Six, be organized with wings flanking a central administration building. Seven house the most excited patients in the end or outmost wings, and eight provide an abundance of pure, fresh air. Kirkbride's hospitals were intended as monuments to the belief that most insane are curable, and thus that the function of the hospital is primarily curative and not custodial. That curative process was to be greatly enhanced by pleasant surroundings, including fresh air and pure water.
0: Yeah, so, like, these... Buildings they're saying, like the way that they're laid out according to the Kirkbride plan. If you look at it from like a bird's eye view, it looks like a bat, mm-hmm. it's like do 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 with his do. wings, yeah, yeah. With wings radiating out. And I mean, that served all the purposes we were talking about. And it's supposed somehow that shape is supposed to circulate like fresh air throughout it, yeah. They're all reasons that this Kirkbride guy thinks that it would enhance their treatment process and in, in a place like this. Um, And then by the turn of the 20th century, Danvers State Hospital had outgrown its site and facilities. Therefore, in 1902, an additional 100 acres straddling the towns of Danvers and Middleton was purchased and a major building campaign was undertaken. 20th century additions to the hospital reflect not only growth of the patient population, but also an increased emphasis on occupational therapy and current theories of decentralized care. Large barns, which are now demolished, were built as were new buildings for the men who helped out for the farming venture. In fact, after the very first year of its operation, once the layout was decided, roads, fences, pickery, corn barn, wagon sheds, manure cellars, and apple orchards were in place. The farm continued to grow and prosper and soon became a famous model. The Danvers onion, locally derived by the Gregory Seed Company, was among the many vegetables grown there. Elaborate pleasure gardens were established adjacent to the Kirkbride complex to supplement recreational therapy programs. In fact, the Danvers State Hospital was so remarkable that it attracted nearly 12,000 visitors yearly, as early as 1880. In addition to visiting patients, they brought contributions of books, magazines, and flowers, and conducted religious services. Thus was established a pattern of community involvement for which the hospital would later become known for. As originally established, the Danvers Hospital was to be run by a resident superintendent appointed by an unpaid lay board of trustees, chosen by the governor. The central authority was uh, held within the Board of State Charities. After 1879, this board became known as the State Board of Health, Lunacy, and Charity. In 1898, the leadership role of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts radically advanced with the formation of the State Board of Insanity, the first in the United States. Landmark legislation uh, took the poor out of the almshouses and put them under state control. They introduced occupational therapy and social services, and it emphasized mental hygiene and called for
1: professional training of nurses and attendants. Danvers State Hospital became a leader in the implementation of these progressive and humanitarian tenants, becoming one of the most advanced institutions of the kind in the country, providing all practical means possible for intelligent treatments of insanity as a disease. That's by Frank E. Monahan, Oh, like the guy from SNL. Bobby Moynihan. I wonder if they're related. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Danvers State made extensive early use of occupational therapy. In addition to working the farm and greenhouses, patients repaired facilities. They dug tunnels and built small buildings. They also made shoes and participated in other crafts and Montessori kindergarten exercises. Patient crafts were also sold to the public and shown at exhibitions like the Boston Mechanics Hall Textile Show in 1916 and the one in Stoneham in 1919. Mental and physical hygiene at Danvers State was guided by the most advanced contemporary thinking, despite epidemics such as the great outbreak of the bacillary distinery of... <laughs> Dysentery. That's okay. We're just clearly shoving it under the rug. Okay. <laughs> of 1908, in which uh, 36 patients died primary ingredients in the program were recreational therapy, like gardens, etc. And fresh air was supplied by an advanced ventilating system, like we talked about earlier with the the shape of architecture. And then they also did hydrotherapy. It was believed that the use of water baths would unclog the brain and allow for the discontinuation of irritating restraints and depressing drugs that they were probably given. And then Um, The advanced pathology department supported the hygiene effort. I mean, I'm just saying I'm a big proponent of a warm bath. I am, but I feel like it's more of a hot tub and I can't take hot tubs for very long. Like you have to get in and then get out. I think they make it. Like, yeah.
0: Well, from they, like, what I've seen, yeah,
1: from what I've seen, it's yeah. like really hot. Like they come out scorched. Yeah, like it's actually kind of torture. Yeah, yeah, no, so it's, it's not plushable. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't think it's like a bubble bath. They're no, not I don't think like... so either. <laughs> However, by the time the 1930s began rolling in, conditions at Danvers began to deteriorate. The original plan was designed to house about 500 patients, and the attic space could potentially house 100 more. But by the late 1930s and 40s, there were over 2,000 patients being housed. It was only supposed to fit 500, and now they have 2,000. That's, do the math. Way overboard. <laughs> 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 That's way too many. Classic. <laughs> That's overcrowding. Um, yeah, it was severe. People were even held in the basements of the building. I don't even know what they did for rooms. They must have had to come up with makeshift. I mean, yeah, they just must have crowded people in there
0: like four times to a room what you should be.
1: Yikes. Yeah. So obviously, you know, these staff, uh, they were struggling to deal with the overflow. And of course, some of the patients were violent. And I'm sure if you add more patients over nurses and staff, of course, they're going to start to act out. Yeah, you can't possibly get to them all if you're... Exactly. And according to some reports, some patients were even left to just wander the halls. Um, There's some reports that people who visited... In the main, in the main, uh, what's it called? In the main waiting room, people would just wander around nude and covered in their own filth. So clearly, the hygiene had also deteriorated because mm. probably they had no one to watch over. Didn't have enough baths, them. probably. Exactly. The hospital no longer had the staff or resources necessary to maintain the ideal Kirkbride plan, so they began to seek out solutions to the rowdy crowds of patients. Unfortunately, shock therapy and straitjackets then became the norm for tactics of submission. Electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, is a psychiatric treatment in which seizures are electrically induced in patients to provide relief from mental disorders. ECT became very popular in the U.S. around the 1940s as the psychiatric hospitals were overrun with patients and doctors were desperate to treat and care. The procedure is often used as an intervention for major depressive disorder mania, and ketonia. The thing is, a course of ECT is only effective for about 50% of people with treatment-resistant major depressive disorder, whether it's unipolar or bipolar. So before long, shock therapy wasn't doing enough to control the patient population at Danvers. And staff began turning to another option, lobotomies.
0: Yes, classic lobotomies. Guys, Here's a little uh, info for you. A lobotomy is a form of psychosurgery that involves severing connections in the brain's prefrontal cortex. Most of the connections to and from the prefrontal cortex, the anterior part of the frontal lobes of the brain, are severed. The originator of the procedure, Portuguese neurologist Antonio Egas Moniz, shared the Nobel Prize for Physiology or Medicine of 1949 for the, quote, Discovery of the Therapeutic Value of uh, Hmm, leucotomy in Certain Psychosis, end quote. Although the awarding of the prize has been subject to controversy. No surprise there. Walter Freeman, an American physician, learned about lobotomies from Moniz and played a large role in making the procedure commonplace in the United States. Freeman's personal technique involved severing the connection between the frontal lobes and the thalamus. Because Freeman lost his license to perform surgery himself after his last patient died on the operating table, he enlisted neurosurgeon James Watts as a research partner. One year after the first locotomy, which we just looked up, locotomy is almost the same thing as lobotomy. Lacotomy, lobotomy, locotomy, lobotomy. lobotomy. Uh, so one year after the first of one of those, on September 14th, 1936, Freeman directed Watts through the very first prefrontal lobotomy in the United States on housewife Alice Hood Hammett of Topeka, Kansas. After about 10 years of performing lobotomies, Freeman heard about a doctor in Italy, Amaro Fiamberti, who operated on the brain through his patient's eye sockets. This allowed him to access the brain without drilling through the patient's skull. With this as his inspiration, Freeman developed a new spin on the procedure. He called it the transorbital lobotomy, or the ice pick lobotomy. It was performed by inserting a metal pick into the corner of each eye socket, hammering it through the thin bone with a mallet, and moving the pick back and forth severing the connections to the prefrontal cortex in the frontal lobes of the brain. The transorbital lobotomy did not require a neurosurgeon and could even be performed outside of an operating room without the use of anesthesia by using ECT to induce a seizure. The procedure became quite popular in some Western countries during the 1940s and into the 1950s, despite general recognition of frequent and serious side effects. By 1952, almost 20,000 lobotomies had been performed in the United States alone, and proportionally more in the UK. The purpose of the operation was to reduce the symptoms of mental disorder, which for the most part it was successful at. However, it came at the expense of a person's personality, intellect, and overall livelihood. Following the operation, there there is commonly a reduction in the patient's spontaneity, responsiveness, self-awareness, and self-control. There were a few people who benefited from the operation and even managed to return to work afterwards. However, many others were left with severe and disabling impairments. Some patients died as a result of the operation. On average, there was a mortality rate of approximately 5% during the 1940s. Others committed suicide after the procedure. In 1950, Walter Freeman's longtime partner, James Watts, left their practice and split from Freeman due to his opposition of the cruelty and overuse of the transorbital lobotomy. Following his development of the transorbital lobotomy, Freeman traveled across the country, visiting mental institutions, performing lobotomies, and spreading his views and methods to institution staff. One of the mental institutions he visited was none other than the Denver State Hospital. After that, lobotomies became somewhat of a specialty at Danvers. Neurology experts often called Danvers State Hospital the birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy. Visitors to Danvers in the early 1940s reported lobotomy patients wandering aimlessly through the halls of the hospital. Patients would walk around in a kind of, like, drugged, hellish state. They would just be staring at the walls blankly for hours.
1: And by the time the 1960s had rolled around, Americans began putting an emphasis on alternative methods of treatment, deinstitutionalization, and a community-based mental care, mental health care. As a result, the inpatient population of many insane asylums throughout the country started to decrease. Danvers State Hospital was no exception, and massive budget cuts also played a very big role in the gradual closing of Danvers. The hospital closed the wards and facilities starting in 1969. By 1985, the majority of the original hospital wards were closed or abandoned. The administration block in the original Kirkbride building closed in 1989, and patients were moved to the Boner Medical Building across campus. The entire campus was closed on June 24, 1992, and all patients were either transferred to the community or to other facilities. The abandoned hospital sat in place for a long time until December 2005. The property was sold to Avalon Bay Communities, a residential apartment developer. There was some pushback from the community, um, but the hospital was listed on the National Register of Historic Places, and a lawsuit was actually filed by a local preservation fund to deny its demolition. However, the lawsuit obviously didn't work because demolition of the building began in January of 2006. By June of that year, all of the Danvers State Hospital buildings had been torn down, but a replica of the original towers on the Kirkbride was built to duplicate what was removed around 1970. Only the exterior of the Kirkbride complex was preserved in the demo, and the cemeteries, um, some several blocked tunnels, and the brick shells of the administration— And the D&G wings are still remaining, but that's the only thing that's still standing from the original site. Avalon Bay predicted that they would have properties available for rent or sale by fall of 2007. However, this was halted by a mysterious large fire that burnt some of the apartment complex buildings down and construction trailers in April of 2007. Some say that the old tormented souls of the patients at Danvers were getting revenge for their terrible treatment. One of the only remnants left of the once-standing Danvers State Hospital are the gravestones in two nearby cemeteries, which contain 770 bodies. Some headstones only have numbers as opposed to names. A sad lack of dignity with respect to the Danvers patients, displayed even in death. Right, which I don't even think we've said yet, but we did visit here. We did.
0: I think we'll talk about everything at the end, but um, we can attest The cemetery part, and there were definitely a lot of headstones not even headstones, just little tiny stones or rocks that had numbers
1: on them Mm -hmm. and no names. Danvers State Hospital was listed on like the top 10 most haunted places in Massachusetts, but obviously, since they demoed all of it, and when they were working, when they put forward the budget to turn it into apartment complexes, they had security guards on night watch all the time so i think i read somewhere that like 500 people tried to get in and only like mm. 120 of them were successful or something yeah um i think there was only one famous like investigation team paranormal investigation team that actually got the okay to go in and, and they did something but they never released their reports or findings
0: really I didn't yeah know that.
1: yeah but That's um we'll share with you later on some of the the haunted paranormal activities of people. I bet,
0: though, like, because this place was abandoned for a long time. Yeah. From the 80s to, like, the early 2000s. Yeah. I bet there was so many kids breaking in. I
1: saw some pictures, too, um, before they demoed it. And it's just... Even the pictures are scary. Yeah, it
0: really is.
1: But we'll get into it.
0: Yeah, okay. So before we do, let's just uh, talk about the demo of the building. Um, These next two paragraphs are... Quotes, they're all just an excerpt from the Salem News, um, and this was published in December of 2005, and this is just talking about the demolition of the original building. I write to you today with a great sadness about the loss of the Kirkbride building on the grounds of Danvers State Hospital. Despite every effort to preserve this national historic treasure, despite its unique place in the history of the area and in the humane treatment of the mentally ill... Despite the existence of countless and much older buildings in other parts of the world, the Kirkbride has fallen, a victim of short-sightedness and greed. As I write this letter, the backhoes and bulldozers and wrecking balls are gnawing away at one of the most remarkable architectural treasures of the modern era. I have no illusions that Avalon Bay's creations will stand the test of time, as did the Kirkbride. In 100 or even 500 years, when future historians shake their heads over this tragic mistake, let it be remembered that there were those who had a vision of preservation and reuse of the Danvers State Hospital properties that did not require demolition and cookie cutter concrete construction, end quote. So I think that's uh, just kind of a, an excerpt that's representative of, I think, how a lot of, a lot of people in the area felt um when this was taken down i think it was a na- nap i was gonna say national i wouldn't i don't know if i'd say national it was a, it was a treasure in new england at least it was one of the first of its kind in the area the architecture was amazing i mean so we so we went today so right it's fresh in my brain yes um, so obviously it is demoed it's not there it's gone it's apartments which by the way those apartments were beautiful but they basically did an exact replica of at least, like, the center part of the original building. Right. Which is now the check-in building. Yeah, it's, like, the leasing office of the apartments. I mean, it was just a replica, but it was it, it was really pretty. It was, And, yeah. I mean, you can just imagine if that replica went on for, like, all the sections were there and it went on as long as oh, it originally for sure. was. I can see how it, it would have been... I mean, quite amazing to see. I guess.
1: Yeah, it is kind of weird though because the building itself that they replicated is all brick, and then everything around it is just very modern. Yeah, the the apartments that all surround it are like like they're very nice, but they are not brick. Modern, they're okay. they're not architectural. They're just. It does. Yeah, it didn't drive that well, but no, but it definitely makes it stand out. It makes the the main part of it
0: yeah and like right in Different. front of, right in front of the front door, um there's like a sign that states how it's a historic landmark and it ta- it has like a paragraph about the history of the building and how it was the hospital beforehand. and that's really the only thing there that we saw that kind of gave a nod to what it used to be in the history of the place. So I think a lot yeah. of people are pretty sad that the whole history of it was just kind of lost. In this new, I mean, they did do a replica of part of it, but there's not really much explaining what the replica is or why they did that. Right. So I think um, a lot of people were
1: disheartened. I wonder if they almost wanted to wipe away history a little bit. Like, they don't want it to be known as the insane asylum. Mm-hmm. Also, guys, be honest. At the end of this,
0: count how many times we said insane asylum <laughs> instead of insane asylum. <laughs> really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think every time we're just like, insane asylum. It does flow better, though. I know. I know. I tend to say that.
1: Insane in the membrane. Yeah yeah and then the uh, only other part that actually is standing is the cemetery right (laughs) which we went to but
0: it's kind of crazy like the cemetery you you would expect it to be somewhere in sight like somewhere with a sign that says something about like it's in like someone's backyard it's literally down a path that's I mean, it's a stone path, but, like, the grass is growing in the stones. You no. can't even hardly see yeah. the stones
1: anymore. No, we passed right by someone's living room. I looked in through yeah, their window. we had to pass behind so someone's
0: weird. house. Like, we had to do, in, like, Google Earth investigation to find where yeah. this thing was. Yeah. And you walk down, and, like, once you finally go down, like, I don't know, a quarter mile or something, there's a sign way in the woods that says, like, something kind of nice about
1: yeah, it's nice. There's a plaque when you first walk in with the quote, "You remain always in our thoughts and prayers forever in our hearts." Yeah, there's
0: there's um a couple of like little memorials, stones or whatever that have something etched in them. Um there's a couple in the center that have listed the names of every single patient of the hospital that was buried in the cemetery. So, um that was that was definitely nice. A lot of, a lot of the headstones and they're not, he- they're not like headstones that come up. They're just little. What like what embedded in the ground. Yeah. I forget. Like plaques, I guess. In yeah. the ground of stone. Most of them do have names, but as you kind of go down, there are definitely some just plain stones that have a number that is mm-hmm. like a plot number that didn't have a name. Um, which is kind of sad. We did go inside the building. We did go inside,
1: yes. And let me tell you, the renovations are nice. <laughs>
0: Ooh.
1: Yeah, this is not the Kirkbride your mom knows. No. <laughs> let us say right now. It is swanky. They had these, like, modern luxury kind of feel going on. It was, yeah. It was, like, velvet in some places with, like, gold. The undertones. lighting fixtures were,
0: like, mm, so Joanna
1: Gaines. Mm,
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, those those apartments are probably... Yeah,
1: and just in the public, pricey. there was, like, this huge espresso maker, a fridge, and we oh, sat yeah. down, there were, like, three MacBook desktop computers oh, yeah. out for whoever lives there to just use. Yeah, this place is, like... It's nice. Oh, they had a nice pool. Oh, oh yeah, pool. so nice. A little basketball, half-basketball court. There was a game going on. Now we're just, like, <laughs> promoting <laughs> <Yeah>. this apartment. <laughs> yeah, so if you guys want to lease there, for
0: sure, they have openings. It's called... It's called Bradley. Bradley Apartments. mm mm-hmm. um, Yeah, it was pretty. And Kirby insisted.
1: Oh, my God. I was so embarrassed. I'm okay, gonna- <laughs> I just wanted to know, the people who worked there, if they had any inkling of a presence there or if they ever stayed late at night and something happened. So I was like, you know what? What the hell? Let's just ask them. They had nothing. Mm-hmm. I straight out asked. I said... Have you ever had anything weird happen here? We're
0: sitting in a lobby <laughs> waiting for them to come up to us. They come up to us. They're clearly thinking that we are interested in renting an apartment here. Yeah, all they saw our money <laughs> signs. Was like, yes, I do have a question. Um, have you ever seen any ghosties here?
1: <laughs> I did not say ghosties. <laughs> well, anyway, the answer was no and no, but they did direct us to this really cool book signing. Unfortunately, it wasn't the day that we were going. Yeah, she was like, "There's some
0: pamphlets in the corner for <laughs> a book signing that's going to happen soon."
1: So clearly, we are not the only people who asked. But I guess they hold like a, a respect, recognition, and remembrance event yes. every year. Yeah, which is really cool.
0: Every year they do a, a memorial, and they go down to the cemetery and they hold hold a little vigil or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yes, according to the staff, the new apartments that are on top of this um plot of land are not haunted or they have not had experiences
1: which i don't know if they're saying that just because they want you to live there and people don't usually want to live in some place that has such a deep past so they could be lying i guess they could be let's look at it from their angle they want to sell 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 she's not getting commission they probably are you think mm, maybe front desk lady well she could have a higher position she might not just be the front desk lady. Or it's just not haunted. It could also not be haunted. (laughs) I mean, the only, that the fire that broke
0: out, people do agree that that was a little mysterious. I think it wasn't even really known how it started. So Mm -hmm. that was something weird that happened. And I'm sure, I'm sure that there was some spooky vibes in the hospital while it was still standing. Oh, 100%. When it was kind of run down and abandoned. Oof! I can only imagine like the feeling in there with like seeing all the beds and the the chairs and the baths that were empty. And, mm-hmm.
1: and... So there's really only been a couple eyewitness reports to surface over the last couple of years. Well, not last couple, I guess more like two thousands, nineties, two thousands, while the building still stood. And one person, Geraldine Leveser. Stated she saw a ghost when she lived there as a child. The ghost supposedly pulled the sheets off her bed and it manifested as an older, scowling woman. She said she had never felt threatened by the ghost. And she also confirmed that it had only appeared one time. Other people who weren't ghost hunters, I think they were more teenage kids who went in there. Middle school teenage kids who just went an at amateur night. Amateur
0: ghost hunter, if you will.
1: Yeah, like us. yeah yeah. well anyway they'd go in and i think one because they were young and two because it was at night and three because the place was just generally really scary Um, they all reported just feeling absolute dread going through those doors and and going around and a lot of the reports just recall a lot of screaming they'd hear one scream and then it would just send them fleeing um but there were a lot of reports like that where they would just hear a scream and, and that pretty much they just. All went running. Yeah, I would too. I would 100% run. But the actual Danvers State Hospital, it did invoke quite a bit of imagination from other people. If anyone's seen Batman.
0: Dude, 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 Batman, is that
1: <laughs> it? <laughs> yeah, that's pretty close. It. <laughs> well, anyway, it inspired Batman's Arkham Asylum. And it also inspired H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham Sanitarium.
0: Um, it was also the setting for the 2001 horror film Session 9. Have you ever seen that? Mm-mm. Me neither. And it was featured Good. in the 1958 film Home Before Dark. So I think this it really was one of the most popular insane asylums in the country. It was definitely the most popular one in New England. Um, and I think it became so famous and there became a lot of folklore surrounding it when people kind of found out about the shitty conditions and, like, the lobotomies that were going Mm -hmm. on. And I think people kind of took that setting and that vibe and, like, ran with it for some spooky movies and stuff. Yeah, a lot of mystery surrounding it, too. Yes. And um, if you guys have seen American Horror Story, um, first of all, if you haven't, what? Yeah, what are you doing? It's Like, stop this and go watch it because it'll change your life. Well, (laughs) the first few seasons will change your life, if we're all being honest. Mm. But anyway. the Second season, Asylum. I know you've all seen it. Guys, that is literally... It never says... It doesn't say where it takes place, actually. I think it says, like, the county it takes place in, but it's actually, like, a made-up county, but it does say it takes place in Massachusetts. It never says the actual town, but... It's absolutely a thousand percent like based off of Danvers. One
1: hundred percent. Yeah,
0: I mean, it's in it's in Massachusetts, so hello. It's close to Boston because one of like the priests or whatever is said he was a, like a Boston out of the Boston diocese. Mm-hmm. Um, they all try to do Boston accents, and they're all pretty terrible, but they're trying to do it, so they're in the Boston area. Like I, I watched a couple episodes last night because I just. Love that season. Favorite season. And I wanted to remember it. And like they were mentioning Massachusetts towns, like they were talking about Chicopee, Um, and I think a lot of the aspects of that season are based off of Danvers. I think the visual of the place was based off of Danvers. Um, they do electric shop therapy, obviously, in the season. I think they do lobotomies, but I didn't get there yet. Um, it's crazy and Yeah, so that just shows you, like, how much of an influence it has on kind of more of the media side of the world. Um, I think that they were really inspired by the story.
1: Yeah, and I think, doesn't the director, like, love New England?
0: Um, I don't know. Ryan Murphy? Yeah. So there's also, if you guys have seen it, there's that plot line, remember, where um, Evan Peters and I don't know the actress's name. They were a couple and he saw like aliens and they think that he killed his wife and she was Mm -hmm. black and he was white and they were interracial couple. So that actually is most likely based off of a very famous story in New Hampshire that, I mean, we may or may not cover. It's on our to do list, but it's a couple from New Hampshire who claims that they saw. A UFO or an alien setting. They, no, they claim they were abducted by aliens,
1: abducted.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, And they were, they were an interracial couple. So I think that that was also inspired by that plot. So I I do think he took a lot of inspiration from the New England area. New England scaries. For that, for that season anyway. Oh, and then Emma Levine in the beginning. That was Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. But um, yeah. If you guys haven't seen that, oh my God, please go watch it. Go watch it now. So good. Yes.
1: Yeah. So, conclusions of this podcast is the place is really weird because, well, the old place was really weird because people were basically kept there against their will. Um, like okay. at first, it was a, a nice, caring, intensive care uh, facility. And then it quickly turned into a place that you would want. To never step foot in.
0: Yeah. It seemed like from whatever we read, it was great in the beginning. They had the best intentions. And then, as with anything, money ran out. So mm-hmm. so corners were cut to try to keep the place under control. And that did not go well.
1: No. Not a lot of haunted activity.
0: No. Doesn't, doesn't seem like it was haunted. One more place disproved by Killer Babes. You're welcome, everybody. You're welcome. On to the next. <laughs> Disproving haunted theories one week at a time. But we've got some pretty
1: creepy ones coming up, so stay tuned. You know what? It's one of them better wow me at this point. I think one of them is going to. Okay. I think it is. I'm I have key. high hopes for one of them.
0: Good. All right. Well, um, hope you guys enjoyed that one. See you later. <laughs> <laughs> no worries, Psych. Psych. Yeah, trick board. Yeah. So uh, we hope you guys like that one. Let us know what you think.
1: Let us know if you've been.
0: Yeah. Or if there's another one in the area that you think we should there's a there's a
1: there's handful, a couple
0: yeah. um of these in the New England area. So we might have to check out a couple more.
1: I just want to check out one that hasn't been Demolished, yeah. There are definitely a couple of those Ooh, that I we got to get to them quick the <laughs> before, yeah. they, before they, before they fall turn down. Into apartment
0: complexes
1: That's what everything's turning into these days are like luxury apartment complexes. Factories are getting turned into luxury complexes.
0: I don't know about y'all, but I could not, I definitely would not have been able to afford those. They were oh, real nice, they were way too nice. Yeah, all right, guys. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Anything else we need to say before we go?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) I was, like, trying to think of something clever, but I got nothing. Yeah. I got zero. All right. Well, nothing else to say to you guys. But if you have something to say to us, let us know.
0: Yeah. You can email us at Podcast at gmail.com.
1: and as always, we appreciate everyone who's reviewed us on iTunes Podcast. Seriously, guys, so nice. Thank you so much. We appreciate it, but keep it coming, people. Please. We do appreciate Please. it.
0: We love you all. We really do. These babes mean it. Yeah. And with that, have a nice night. Peace out. Peace. <laughs>